0: Well, most of us have lived long enough to know what it's like to have a good boss and a bad boss. Even if you're in school, you've probably had good coaches and bad coaches and good teachers and bad teachers. Uh, That is to say, good uses of authority and bad uses of authority. And the two people that come to my mind in my early, um, well, late teens, early 20s of of quite contrasting leadership styles um, were two gunnery surgeons that I had. Um, one of them was uh, deeply loved by his men, his troops, and the other one was despised. Uh, the, the first one, who was a, just a, a great leader, and to this day, we still keep in contact through social media. That's the one good thing about social media. You can keep in contact with people that you had in your life 33 years ago. But the first one, was Gunny. his name was Gunny DeBow. And um, all of us plebes, you know, the, the privates and the lance corporals and corporals, we, we loved him because um, he would come into the barracks after hours. And we lived in this, like, in some branches of service. You kind of get your own room. You know, it's kind of like a dorm room. We didn't. Uh, after basic, we got this big, huge squad bay um, where 30 guys lived with nothing but shoe lockers and bunk beds. Um, that's 30 dudes living in one big space with one bathroom. And he would show up after hours and just hang out with us. You know, there's like five ranks between me and him. And he would sit on the couch sometimes and just, just want to know who we we were. And at times he'd play pool and other times he'd go out with us to, to dinner without breaking any kind of fraternization rules. And what that communicated to us is that you care about us. You care about us as our leader he was just, he was fair, he was firm. We all knew, like, you don't don't defy gunny to de bow, that would be bad. But we respected it. And as a result, our work experience was awesome. We'd love to go to work. We were creative. Uh, we felt loved. We felt secure. A, a wonderful work environment. Like I said, we still communicate to this day. And uh, that's how good authority is supposed to work. Um, that... A good use of authority, good, loving, just, fair use of authority is going to create an atmosphere where people can flourish and thrive and where creativity will happen, where people actually want to come to work. That's good authority. But he left, and another gunnery sergeant took his place by the name of gunnery sergeant. I'm just going to use this first letter because I want to protect the guilty and not be guilty of gossiping, although I think he's passed away by now. But his name was Gunnery Sergeant P. He was the, uh, the opposite. Uh, his motto of leadership was, if the troops are happy, I'm not doing my job. You get that? Just let that sink in. Can you imagine a husband saying, if my wife is happy, I'm not doing my job. Well, we weren't happy 90% of the time, which meant he felt like he was doing a wonderful job. And there was just such frustration, such fear. I mean, in my impression, he was capricious. That means he, he, was, he was given to these mood swings. I think we could probably call that bipolar these days. Um, he was capricious. He was unfair. He had a short temper. And he loved to command in a way that made you feel like a dog. And what that did is it created an atmosphere, for those of us he led, of fear, frustration. Um, it just was a toxic place to work. And it got so bad that, and this is, to the best of my memory, absolutely 100% true, to the best of my memory, that when when it came to re-enlisting, only one guy stayed in, largely because of the influence of this negative authority. Two very different kinds of leaders. One that caused or created a context in which there was a flourishing and a thriving and a a joy. Another one is like suffocating, created a toxic atmosphere. Authority, two very different kinds. Now, I know in our culture, we don't really like the word authority, and there's a lot of resistance to it. We don't want to be told what to do. We want to make up our own mind and do whatever we feel. But you and I both know the answer is no Authority. That the answer isn't no authority. That's just simple anarchy and chaos. The answer is good, just, and wholesome authority. Now I want to read to you a, a verse from King David who understood what it means to command an army, what it means to to, to lead a nation. Of course, he didn't do it perfectly. He had some glaring mistakes. But this is what he said about authority, and it is, it's powerful. This is at the end of his life, 2 Samuel chapter 23. And I want you to just... Um, soak in the word pictures because they're beautiful. This is what he says. He says, the God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, this is what God has said to David. When one rules justly over men, ruling in fear of God above, this is it, verse four, he dawns on them, that is the people he leads, the people he has authority over, He dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Those are amazing pictures of life and and vitality, and like a a sun shining on a cloudless morning, like rain coming down and causing greenery to to explode. That is what good authority does, is it creates a flourishing, a vitality, a, a life. And God has built into creation itself a structure of authority that I want to look at this morning. A structure of authority that has to do with kingship. That is, he established a king and a kingdom. And we're going to back up to the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, to see it laid out. Now, these verses, um, we could spend, there's been entire books written on these verses. Um, I'm just going to focus on the kingship aspect, as that's um, the center point this morning. Let me read it, and then I want to pull it apart for a couple of minutes. It says, then God said, this is the last thing created, and the crowning jewel of his creation, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now you notice twice the word dominion is used, which is a word that simply means rule. We get the word kingdom, from the idea of dominion, a king ruling. That implies that Adam and Eve were created to rule. They were created to exercise authority over creation. Not just Adam, but you notice it says, let them have dominion. It was a shared role. And I think Adam was the lead of that dance, but it was a shared role. So here you have this, this idea from the very beginning of creation of authority, of dominion, of a king and a queen. These verses also lay out, as it relates to his kingship, the qualifications, the scope of his authority, and the mission of his his kingship. Let me just look at those those three things, beginning with his qualifications. What uniquely qualifies Adam as the king and Eve his queen to rule is that they, they are created in the image of God. Nothing else in creation bears that label, created in the image of God. You'll notice it's emphatic, it's repeated, it's like, let us make man in our image, after our likeness So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, as if like, he could have said it once, but he says it a whole bunch of times, so we understand, they were created in the image of God himself. Now that means at least three things in terms of the image. It means that Adam and Eve had the unique ability to relate to God. That is to commune with him, to have an intimate relationship with him. Likeness communes with likeness, which is why we humans like to gather together and why you don't see, you know, giraffes and skunks, like, hanging out together because they're not like each other. Like, skunks hang out with skunks and giraffes, giraffes and zebras, zebras. Every once in a while you'll find a cat and a dog, but mostly those don't mix. But no... God make man in his image, in his likeness, so that there could be communion and relationship, which equips him to rule. Like he has, a, he has the ability to communicate, relate to who God is. That equips him to be a king over creation. It also means being in God's image. It also means that we reflect his character. That is his moral goodness. So Adam and Eve, unlike today where we see leaders and rulers, oftentimes corrupted by self-interest, lobbyists, they, in the original state, reflected God's moral character, which means they were just. They were wise. They had the wisdom with which to order and also cause the earth to flourish. They were loving. They were compassionate, strong. Everything necessary for leadership has been given to them. This moral character and strength. They are created in the image of God. So um, being in the image of God, you can relate to God, you can reflect God's character, and last, represent his rule here on the earth. That is, Adam was to be an under-shepherd, an under-king of God himself, and take care of creation. Those are the three ways in which they are equipped and qualified to be earth's first king. The text also lays out the scope of authority. Now, I want you just keep, again, I want you to keep this in mind because I'm going to bridge this. And you're going to go, oh, and maybe you've, you've known this already. But I want you to go, oh, I see the connection. This is awesome. And there's 15 centuries between this book and Matthew. <laughs> Second, the scope of his kingship. You'll notice, you know we kind of get just let rid of the fish and the birds, and we focus on that, but not the realms in which they exist. This says, the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and over all the earth. All three realms of existence are mentioned: sea, heavens and earth. Adam was to be a king with the scope of authority over all creation. all three. Sea, land, and heavens. So that's the scope of his authority, of the king. And third, there is a mission involved. That is, it's not a static creation where it's like, plop, he has a throne and he just simply orders and exercises authority over the whole He's commanded, he's given a commission, he's given a mandate to do something, to accomplish something, to complete something. So it says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and so forth. That is, he is to establish, Adam and Eve were given the command, the mission, the mandate to establish God's dominion, God's rule, God's kingdom on the earth. It would have started with the Garden of Eden, right? However big it was, that was the location where they were initially um, exercising dominion and authority, taking care of the animals, naming the animals and so forth. But the idea is as they had children and grandchildren, had things stayed the same, that is, we hadn't fallen, then it would have expanded. And eventually it would have filled the earth and they would have subdued it. That implies, of course, that whatever was outside the garden at the time, needed to be ordered or civilized or directly brought underneath this authority structure that God set in place. So in short, Adam and Eve were given the mandate to establish God's kingdom over the whole earth. You see that? So those three things. He's like, what qualifies? Adam and Eve, the first king, made in the image of God. The scope of their authority, sea, heavens, and earth, that is everything. Everything and then this mission to establish God's kingdom on the earth, a people filling the earth um, under the rule of God. Hey, you got, got that in your head. So we all know what happens. The queen is seduced, deceived. The king makes a willful choice to defy God. And when the king falls, everything falls. And the whole of creation, this beautiful authority structure where you know, the sun shining like a cloud, on a cloudless morn is lost. It's darkness, death, sin, corruption. It's, it's just, it's just it's undone. The whole structure that God created that was good and wonderful, a context for flourishing and thriving, is now turned on its head, which is where we're at. Where we're at. And the question I want to ask is, okay, so act one didn't turn out too well. God created man to be a king. It didn't work. So did did God just decide, well, you know what? Plan A just didn't work. I didn't see that coming. Kind of wad it up in the ball and throw it in the trash can and say, I'm going to do something different. I got a plan B in mind. Like, Is is that what's happening between Genesis and what comes after it? And I want to say absolutely 100% no. What we're going to find is that God is going to recapture, restore, and redeem his original plan. It's one plan, not two. One plan. The prophets that would come after, the Hebrew prophets, would speak of a king. Now, there were Jewish kings, and some of them were good. A whole lot of them were bad. But not one of them was perfect. You had David. You know his his stuff. Solomon and his... Stuff, lots of stuff. Hezekiah, he had stuff. Jehoshaphat, he had stuff. Even Josiah had stuff. Everybody has stuff. And even when they ruled relatively well, eventually they died, often leaving their kingdom and authority to a miscreant son. And everything would haywire. Nothing lasts. But there there was a prophetic theme a voice, a picture that God was going to restore kingship permanently, that what Adam was originally created to do would be brought back. And perhaps the clearest text in the Old Testament that speaks of its nature and its permanency is found in Daniel chapter 7, writing some 500 years before Jesus was born. He said this, He describes a vision. He says, I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like the son of man and he came to the ancient of days. Now that first part Jesus quotes while he's on trial. Identifying himself with this verse. And was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. That all peoples, not just the Jewish people, but all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion, there's that same word from Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 and 28. is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Same basic components from Genesis 1 26 through 28. There's dominion, only this time it's not just in a little garden. The prophecy is that it's going to be all the nations, all the peoples, all the languages. Essentially, an earth that has been filled. And unlike the kings that came before, he's not going to die, leaving his authority and his rule to to a miscreant son. But it's going to last forever and ever and ever. And nothing is going to destroy it. This is just language of Genesis 1. God's original plan, original authority structure created for the flourishing and life and vitality of his creation. So you have part one, Genesis one, you have Daniel saying, this is going to happen. And now coming to Matthew chapter one. With all that in mind, it should stagger us as to the enormity of this announcement that the king is born. That a new and better Adam is here, a new and better king is here. Now, we read this. I just took one little snippet out of Matthew chapter 2 that talks about the wise men coming. And, you know, we're, we're we've so Christmas, Christmasified this. You know, you just picture the three wise men. It doesn't actually say there were three, but been more. There's just three treasures, right? When they came, were they singing, we three kings of oh, oh. You just have this Christmas thing in your head, right? But isn't it interesting that through a supernatural summons, God invites aliens, he invites people who are from other nations, Gentiles, to come and see the baby. It's, it's not just a sweet story, it's, it's filled with significance because some of the first visitors are Gentiles, suggesting that Jesus is not just a king for the Jewish people, he's a king for all peoples. From every tribe, tongue, and nation. Also to show the graciousness that God was going to bring non-Jewish people into his kingdom. It's a significant story. But what did they ask? Somehow they knew a king was going to be born. And this king was not like any other person. Because they worshipped him. Where he who has, uh, Where is he who has been born? King of the Jews. For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. This is this is Genesis one twenty six through twenty eight recaptured, fulfilled, and qualifications. The language that describes Jesus is not like the language that describes Adam. It says, "And we they let us create man in our image, in our image." Paul doesn't use that when he talks about Jesus, the image of God. He says, "He is." the image of the invisible God. He is not created in the image. He is the exact image of the invisible God. In fact, the wholeness of God's presence dwells in him bodily. So he has all of the qualifications. Does he relate to God? I told you the image of God has the three R's. Does he relate to God? Yeah. Well, he's one with God. Does he reflect God's moral character? He is the embodiment of God's moral character—justice, love, fairness, and equity, and power, and wisdom, and strength. Is he God's representative man? No, he is the God Man, Jesus Christ, Word made flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. So he—he—he his qualifications far exceed that of Adam's. What is the scope of Jesus' reign? To me, all authority, Matthew chapter 28, has been given. Authority over heaven and earth and everything in between. The entire cosmos. So the scope of his reign is, is the fulfillment of, of Genesis one twenty-six and 28. And his mission, is it any different? I mean, Adam was told you need to fill the earth with the people and establish dominion. And Jesus commands his disciples to go out and make, dis- uh, and make disciples, which is make little kingdom people, spread the kingdom, teaching them to obey. That's what you do to a king. All that I've commanded. And that process, he's basically fulfilling what Adam was told to do. Cover the earth with a people who will rule and exercise dominion. Jesus is the one who is the fountainhead of that. And amazingly enough, he will share that with us. It's one story. It's not two plans, it's one plan. And Jesus comes to fulfill what Adam failed to do. Only he chose, and you know this, this is like so, if you're not familiar with the story, then it catches you completely and utterly off guard. Most of the Marvel comics we like or the DC comics we like, they always win, usually by force. Only this great king who has the exquisite credentials, who's been given rule over the entire universe, um, who is God's king on earth, God himself, Emmanuel, like he subjects himself to humiliation and death on a cross. He didn't come with force. He didn't come with a sword. He came to give his life because the kingdom can't come and sinners not die. So he made a way, and you know, this is the gospel. He made a way through his blood for us to be forgiven and freed of our guilt. And then he rose again to give us our life, to, to, to give us his righteousness so that we could be members of God's eternal kingdom that will last forever and ever and ever. That's our king. Rose again and is seated at the right hand of God right now. So that's bringing the two things together. I hope you see, like, again, pretty Amazing. What are the chances that dozens of different authors stretched over 15 centuries should tell a single story except that the Spirit of God was behind the story? It's compelling to me. Every time I look at this stuff, I'm like, there's nobody else who could write that. That's a supernatural piece of literature. So how do you apply this? How can we? And I want to move this kind of with peace in mind. Just to offer you three things, and this is just the application of the truth. One's obvious, but again, it needs to be restated. If you're like me, I need to learn things over and over and over again, because I forget so easily. A kingdom perspective in God's king that enables us to live in this dark, turbulent, uncertain world with a sense of peace. That is kingship. We don't have to wait until Jesus comes back and establishes his kingdom. At that point, it's going to be by force. We don't have to wait for that event to live in with a sense of peace in our hearts. And the reason for that is because he has already begun to reign. Most of the authority passages in the New Testament are in the past tense. The one I just read or cited from Matthew chapter 28, all authority has been. Not will be, but or, or at some point will be, but he's, has been. The, the reins of power have already been put in the hands of Jesus, which means nothing that happens on planet Earth, good or bad, happens without it passing by his desk for approval. Paul says it this way, Ephesians 1.22. He says, he, that is God the Father, has put all things under his, that is Jesus' feet. He's already in control. Now, it may not seem like it because we see so much conflict and evil in the world, and there is conflict and there is evil in the world. But he presently holds the reins over all those things and is using them and guiding them to his good and loving and glorious purposes. And we, as his followers, are to trust that. And to see the world through that, that, that perspective. Now, this is typically how we do this, and pull my glasses out here. This truth of, of Jesus' cosmic um, universal sovereignty, sometimes it's a truth that we put on like reading glasses, right? Things get bad. You despair or you're really fearful about something and you're like, oh, that's right, God's in control. And you put on the lenses and like, now I can see God's in control. And even though it's hard and I'm in pain, I'm just going to accept this by faith that he's in control. He has a purpose in it. And then the despair or the pain goes away and you're like, okay, take them off now. And then you're not looking at the world through the lens of Jesus rules over this. And then you find yourself despairing and fearing again and panicking over news articles. Rather, the, the, the truth really should be more like permanent contact lenses of seeing everything through the lens of Jesus reigns over this. And I trust him because, one, he, he understands me. He's walked in my shoes. He can sympathize with me and my weaknesses. He knows what it's, what it's like to be in pain. He knows what it's like to be abandoned. He knows what it's like to be verbally and physically abused. And he knows what it's like to face death. He knows me. And he is... Not only a king, he's my shepherd king. So that looking at the world through these contact lenses, permanent contact lenses of Jesus reigns in this, should enable us to see the good things and go, This is of the Lord. And to look at the tragedies and to say, This also is of the Lord. So that we could say, with Job, who understood perhaps better than most of us, The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. What's the next line? Blessed be the name of the Lord. You can't tell me he wasn't writhing in pain emotionally over that statement. But he's able to say, God, your hand is behind this. You give, you take away. Blessed be your name. That's where peace is. It's just knowing God's ruling in your circumstances. And recognizing there's someone driving the car. Two. Second application. This has to do with this mission theme, that fill the earth, you know, exercise dominion over it. I mean, Jesus has commissioned us to be his disciple makers, right? To go out, and for us, most of us, that means just being in our community, being among our neighbors, being amongst those who we work with, and doing our best to testify to what the king has done on our behalf to give us life. And as we do, and some will listen, some won't, But those who listen and come to genuine faith that Jesus died, rose again, and he's the coming king, they become citizens of this eternal kingdom that cannot be destroyed. And in this way, right now, it's like God is establishing his dominion over believing hearts all around the globe. And when that process is finished, when the gospel of the kingdom goes to the last nation, we're told in Matthew chapter 24, the end comes. Why? Because Genesis one twenty-eight will be fulfilled God's people fill in the earth underneath his authority that causes flourishing life forever and ever and ever. So keep that centerpiece. You know, it's easy to forget. We get distracted by good things and we invest in good things. but We forget sometimes that we're supposed to seek first the kingdom of God, which also means seeking its expansion and keeping that front and center. Why am I here? Not just to live my best life now. That's not the point to give thanks for the good things but that's not why we're here we're here to see this mission done and he's given us a spirit to do so in the gospel and third you can't not mention hope that nurtures peace right because the same king we're told is going to come back never to leave again like aslan the lion from cs lewis he's going to come back he's never going to disappear again the sky is going to part and we will see our lord descend and everything will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. Creation itself will go from being this dark, monochrome, black and white thing, kind of like how it is right now, to be a vivid HD color explosion of life as the king reigns directly on the earth. And that's what we're looking forward to. That's, that's the great hope. And man, I just, one of my favorite lines in Handel's Messiah and I think one of the best lines in Revelation chapter 11 is that John hears this loud voice from heaven that says, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever and ever. And in a season where we lose lots of people, To death and disease, we had another one depart at 10:20 this morning. That is, die. Rhonda Guffey's mother. It's good to know that a day is coming when the dead will rise when Christ comes. That's a hope that takes you through a season that's hard for a lot of people, and it's hard for a lot of people this season. We've lost quite a few. Some of you have lost family members, and instead of, it's good to lament. We should grieve. But we don't grieve without hope. And this is a hope that our king gives us. So I pray this truth, this amazing truth that spans 15 centuries will find a place in your heart to give you peace. Lord, we pray for um, fruitfulness with this truth. That you would allow it to simmer in our minds and our hearts so that we can live in its reality, in its joy, its peace, and that we would endure and that we would give thanks and that we would do your work here, the mission that is still being done by your spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name.